Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In January of 1951, Thurgood Marshall arrived in Japan, right in the middle of the Korean War. He was there as a special counsel to the NAACP, which was concerned about irregularities involving the courts martial of 39 black soldiers. Although President Truman had ordered the desegregation of the military in 1948, desegregation did not happen overnight. In the Army, progress was especially slow. Given this and the belief that the courts martial of the 39 black soldiers was racially motivated, General Douglas MacArthur was a natural focus for NAACP leaders. As commander of UN forces in the Korean War, MacArthur's attitude towards desegregation was important. MacArthur was not a racist, and this is a conclusion based not only on his statements, but on a lifetime analysis of his attitude towards people of different races. There is an undeniable consistency in this attitude throughout his life. Some of the earliest evidence of his attitude towards race comes from a trip that he took to Asia in 1905. As a 26-year-old officer, MacArthur witnessed the extreme poverty of millions of people in China, India, Pakistan, Thailand, Vietnam, and Indonesia. He saw people of different races who looked different than him groveling in subhuman conditions, beaten down and repressed by the colonial system, and by a general disregard for the equality and value of every individual. He wrote of these teeming masses, but unlike many 19th and early 20th century travelers, did not blame their condition on race, but on poor government. To MacArthur, governments that repressed the rights of their people inhibited their nation's ability to flourish. Race was certainly not a factor. Given this belief, one would assume that MacArthur would have seen segregation as something that repressed people and limited their ability to function successfully in society. In reality, MacArthur's attitude towards desegregating the army was more complicated. This podcast will explore MacArthur and integration during the Korean War through the lens of the issues that brought Thurgood Marshall to Japan and Korea in 1951. Black Americans have fought in every war their country has been involved in. For the most part, prior to the 1950s, they served in segregated units. These segregated units reflected the concept of separate but equal, a legalized system that promised equality through division. As the Supreme Court would determine years later, separate is inherently unequal. Or perhaps better put, separate has the potential to be unequal and can also be more prone to abuses. Cracks in the viability of this system would appear in civil and military society. But in the military, where trust was an essential element of morale and cohesion, segregation was a clear and present danger. In particular, in the army, 
segregation fostered an environment of mistrust between black and white soldiers. These tensions would reach critical mass by the Korean War, in part because of rumors that circulated during World War II. During World War II, despite the examples of the Tuskegee Airmen and men like Doris Miller, rumors circulated that black units were prone to hysteria and would break under fire. In the military, confidence in those around you is vital. A loss of this confidence, particularly in wartime, can be disastrous. It can also be contagious. Even those prepared to give black soldiers the benefit of the doubt couldn't completely forget the rumors when they went into combat supported by black units. Ultimately, whether they believed the rumors about black soldiers or not, many white commanders had difficulty hiding their inability to fully rely on black soldiers. Catching on to this attitude, many black soldiers focused more on survival than on fighting the enemy. In some cases, these attitudes encouraged arguments that blacks should be kept out of combat and restricted to service support instead, meaning that they could be truck drivers, cooks, and messmen. This was something that the NAACP was unwilling to accept. Their first priority was ensuring black soldiers were put into combat, in the belief that a strong combat record would be the best rejection of the myth that blacks were incapable of shouldering the technical and mental responsibilities of soldiers in the field. Eventually, however, the NAACP began to realize that doing away with segregation in the army was the only way to ensure that black soldiers would be judged as individuals on their own merits rather than being judged and dismissed as a group. For the NAACP, desegregation was the key to proving once and for all that race was irrelevant to good soldiering. Although the military remained segregated after World War II, there would soon be serious challenges to this system that civil rights activists would be able to exploit. One such challenge involved basic economics. The basic requirements of a segregated military presented the United States with a financial and logistical nightmare. With the drawdown of forces after World War II and deep cuts to the military budget, separate but equal meant quite a bit of expensive duplication. Instead of one mess hall, you had to have two, and so on. As a result, during the occupations after the war, Many commanders, MacArthur included, were not keen on accepting black units into their commands because this meant the added hassle of finding or constructing separate facilities. Another major challenge to segregation came in the form of the Cold War. As the Cold War began, it became clear that manpower was at a premium. At the time, black men made up about 10% of the nation's manpower making them a vital part of the national defense. It was therefore important to court rather than alienate this block of manpower. From this strategic perspective, segregation began to make less and less sense, as the specter of a common enemy began to take shape in the form of communism. Another challenge to segregation came in the form of the politics of re-election. Civil rights activists advised President Truman and the Democratic Party that integrating the military was the key to winning the support of black voters. This was the right message at the right time. Ever the shrewd politician, President Truman was not opposed to desegregation, especially if it made sense in terms of budget or national security.
and if he could gain political capital from such a decision, all the more reason to desegregate. On July 26, 1948, President Truman signed Executive Order 9981, calling on the armed forces to provide equal treatment and opportunity for black servicemen. It may not have been born out of the most idealistic reasons, but it signaled a shift. The direction of this shift was not immediately apparent, however. The wording of the executive order was deliberately vague. It made no mention of desegregation or of integration and gave no timetable. It also left plenty of loopholes, as evidenced by the following sentence. This policy shall be put into effect as rapidly as possible, having due regard to the time required to effectuate any necessary changes without impairing efficiency or morale. Essentially, people saw what they wanted to see in this sentence. Civil rights leaders expected integration as rapidly as possible, and those opposed to desegregation interpreted it to mean that integration was not a priority because change could impair efficiency and morale. Predictably, the execution of Truman's order was uneven, with the army being the slowest to adapt. The Korean War would force the issue. The Korean War caught the world by surprise. MacArthur was forced to dispatch under strength poorly trained and equipped units to Korea. This was partly a matter of necessity. The North Korean invasion had to be stopped or slowed, and there was no time to wait for a full-strength division to be readied. In addition, many of the soldiers sent to Korea had no combat experience. While these potential problems were obvious and affected the majority of units initially sent into Korea, they would particularly tarnish the reputation of black units. Two months into the Korean War, the commander of the 25th Division, Major General William Keene, requested that the 8th Army disband the all-black 24th Infantry Regiment. According to him, the 24th was untrustworthy and incapable of carrying out missions expected of an infantry regiment. The 24th had a mixed record in the fighting of August and September of 1950, and Keene accused the regiment of being unreliable on duty at night, of abandoning its positions without warning the other troops on its flanks, of wasting equipment, and of being prone to panic and hysteria. While he acknowledged the implications of this criticism, General Keene went further and stated that the performance of the 24th jeopardized the entire UN war effort. This was serious criticism, and it was shared by General Walton Walker, the commander of the 8th Army, and by MacArthur's own chief of staff, Major General Ned Almond, who had loudly criticized black soldiers in World War II as being unreliable under fire. Most scholarly accounts of this period conclude that such thinking permeated the upper echelons, trickled down to subordinates, and then sapped the trust of other outfits that would fight alongside black units. Other events would soon further inflame the situation in Korea. On July 31, 1950, Major Horace Donahoe, the white commander of the outpost line of resistance for the 24th Regiment, ordered Lieutenant Leon Gilbert, a black officer in command of Company A, to return to the front with a group of men to delay an attack until a main line of resistance could be established. It was a dangerous job, but war is dangerous, and it was nothing that others had not been asked to do. 
Nevertheless, Lieutenant Gilbert refused to go to the front. Reportedly, the 24th's executive officer, Colonel Paul Roberts, pleaded with Gilbert, asking him, Don't you know what they'll do to you? But Gilbert refused to go, responding, No, I'll get killed. In a court-martial three weeks later, Lieutenant Gilbert was charged with violating the 75th Article of War, misbehaving himself before the enemy. Gilbert's defense tried dismissal on the grounds of lack of mental responsibility and had doctors testify that Gilbert was suffering from acute and severe anxiety. They argued that he knew right from wrong, but was unable to force himself to do his duty because of his fear. This plea was rejected, and testimony from Colonel Roberts and Major Donahoe implied that all the men in combat looked just as nervous and jittery as Lieutenant Gilbert. There was also evidence that Gilbert had refused to go into combat on other occasions as well. On September 6, 1950, Lieutenant Gilbert was convicted and sentenced to death. This was an incredibly harsh sentence. While it was a possible punishment, most soldiers got five years or less for such convictions. Many black soldiers believed that the Army had made an example of Gilbert, and even compared the case to that of Private Eddie Slovak, a white soldier executed for desertion during World War II. Private Slovak had been the first U.S. soldier executed for desertion since the Civil War, and his case was widely believed to have been the Army's attempt to discourage others from deserting. The case of Lieutenant Gilbert enraged civil rights groups, and in response, President Truman reduced Gilbert's sentence to 20 years, of which he would later only serve five. The damage was already done, however, and a pattern of discrimination seemed to be appearing. According to witnesses, Gilbert was just the brush that they tarred the 24th with. His case was just the first in a series of trials that involved black soldiers. Many of those convicted believed they had been railroaded to set an example for the rest of the regiment. Thirty-nine of the convicted men contacted the NAACP requesting representation. In response, the NAACP requested that Thurgood Marshall be sent to Japan to investigate claims that the convictions of black soldiers were racially motivated. MacArthur initially refused this request, citing as his excuse that every soldier in this command is measured on a completely uniform basis with the sole criteria being his efficiency and his character. In this refusal, MacArthur also promised to investigate the matter internally and then invited Marshall to come and defend any future black soldiers whose charges seem suspect. Walter White of the NAACP replied to MacArthur and asked for a conference anyways. MacArthur acquiesced and Thurgood Marshall arrived in Japan in February of 1951. According to Marshall, MacArthur gave him the most complete cooperation possible. He interviewed the men in question and studied the cases in detail. Marshall found that in the 25th Division, 60 blacks had been charged with misbehavior in the face of the enemy, compared to 8 white soldiers. Out of these trials, 32 black soldiers and 2 white soldiers had been convicted. The punishments for the white soldiers ranged from 3 to 5 years in prison, while the black soldiers received anywhere from 5 years in prison, to hard labor, to multiple life terms, and in the case of Lieutenant Gilbert, the death penalty. 
Marshall was also concerned by the fact that many of the black soldiers only met with their defense counsel the morning of their trial, and in many cases the trials lasted forty to fifty minutes. Marshall found this haste, especially when rendering a life sentence or a death sentence, very troubling. Three weeks into the investigation, Marshall met with MacArthur to discuss his preliminary findings. At this time, MacArthur was dealing with the biggest battle of the Korean War, the Chinese Fourth Phase Offensive. Marshall asked MacArthur if he could go to Korea to continue his investigation, and MacArthur agreed, giving Marshall complete authority and access to whatever he needed. Marshall continued his investigation in Korea and then returned to Japan. Of his investigation, Marshall wrote that he was struck by the hopelessness of all of the convicted men. He found that they had approached their trials resigned to being convicted. For Marshall, this hopelessness was the result of segregation. He wrote that each man is an individual in the eyes of God and under the Constitution, and believed that segregation robbed men of their individuality by lumping them into a group that could be discriminated against. When the five-week investigation came to a close, Thurgood Marshall concluded that racial discrimination had been a factor in many of the courts martial. He met with MacArthur again, and according to accounts of the meeting, Marshall explained his findings and recommended integration as a solution to discrimination. MacArthur reportedly agreed and informed Marshall that he had prepared orders a month prior mandating the elimination of black units and the reassignment of these soldiers to white units. In private, MacArthur remarked to a staffer that he felt from his experiences that the best results would come from integrating the white and black units. In his official report, Marshall pointed out that although MacArthur did not have official responsibility for the disposition of the individual courts martial cases, it was necessary to place the ultimate responsibility for the disposition of those cases squarely upon MacArthur because he had both the authority and the responsibility for maintaining or ending racial segregation in the Army's Far East Command. Marshall also questioned why MacArthur had no black soldiers in his honor guard and only three black civilians working in his entire headquarters. In response to these findings, MacArthur ordered an investigation into the problem of segregation in his command. His committee worked from the premise that black soldiers can and do fight well when integrated and that no race has a monopoly on stupidity. MacArthur was fired before this report was finished but the committee eventually found that quota-based integration was practical and possible. MacArthur's replacement, General Matthew Ridgway, would fast-track integration in Korea. Even after his dismissal, MacArthur continued to field questions to clarify his role in the integration of the Army. On May 22, 1951, MacArthur gave an interview to a reporter of the Philadelphia Courier, a predominantly black paper. When asked about Thurgood Marshall's findings, MacArthur explained, I was unaware of the prevalence of these courts martial as far as race is concerned until they were called to my attention. I am willing to concede that these courts martial may have been excessive. He then praised the black soldiers who had served in his command, saying that he only had one criticism, that Washington hadn't sent him enough black soldiers. 
MacArthur also blamed Washington for segregation and for sending him organized Jim Crow units. He further explained, I did not ask for men by race. I asked Washington for men. And yet, discrimination clearly existed in MacArthur's command, whether he sanctioned it or not. So why didn't MacArthur do more personally to facilitate integration? That is a hard question, particularly in light of how quickly Ridgway demonstrated that he had the power to integrate his troops. Aside from a few interviews, MacArthur himself never really said much about any of this. While he didn't have any praise for segregation, and was certainly not a racist, it seems that he just didn't care about the issue, or perhaps didn't understand the issue. It also may have been that he was too preoccupied with managing the Korean War. More telling, perhaps, is that MacArthur didn't obstruct integration. Had he done this, it would have been much more difficult to achieve. Overall, it seems that integration was just an issue that never really consumed him. As such, it was probably something that he delegated to others who were either opposed to it or who didn't have the weight of MacArthur to force the change. In the end, he could have done more. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov. Oh! <laughs>